Today's episode is with Kera Mukana. Uh, detecting the issues as early as possible. I mean, how are you going to you know, remediate those issues? Is it manual? Is it automated? You know, how can you be smart about it? And also, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. If you're a small organization, you try to upskill your dev to get involved with more automation of things in the dev side. You know, the breaking builds uh, with CICD pipelines or code gating is a very common thing. We want them to be called team of how. We want to show how easy it is to implement this. Anyone below the median should be automatically told it. The culture is going to eat all the strategy, all the best practices that you bring from all other places. That makes things easier. That that starts with having daily meetings or weekly meetings or on a regular cadence meeting. This is not going to work in corporate uh, America, especially in startups. It's not going to work because nothing is rocket science anymore. I mean, I don't want to underestimate the importance of the things that we do. There is policies of uh, cloud native security. You want to follow that four C, the four layers. Hi everyone, this is Purshottam and thanks for tuning into Scale to Zero podcast. Today's episode is with Kera O'Tanner. Uh, he has over 20 years of experience in PCI SOX compliant uh, work uh, in both New York and Wall Street. Uh, currently, he's a director of DevSecOps at Roche. Previously, he has worked at ADP, WPP and FICO. Uh, he, he's a trusted DevOps and SecOps uh, advisor. He speak, frequently speaks at international DevOps and SecOps events since 2016. Recently, he presented at RSA uh, on implementing zero trust with a dedicated DevSecOps pipeline. Prior to that, he has also presented at KubeCon, uh, Detroit, DevSecOps days, Washington, D.C., uh, Moscow, Lithuania, and Turkey. Um, he has a unique perspective and he has launched DevSecOps teams at ADP and also at Roche. Thank you so much for coming to the uh, podcast, uh, Kera. For our audience, do you want to briefly share about your journey? Yeah, thank you for having me on this on this podcast. Um, my journey has become, uh, you know, I have been uh, in Linux and open source ecosystem for over, I guess, close to 25 years now. Um, Started as a as a developer and then quickly switched to systems admin side and then with the emergence of all the uh, compliance and PCI which was launched in two thousand five and SOX compliance I guess around two thousand eight or seven after the Enron uh, thing uh, I moved to security space and it, as with everything in IT we change shapes we, we coin new terms but you know we also improve the process along the way. So I see that very agile way of doing security. I've seen the manual, very mundane, paper work driven way of doing stuff to evolve into the DevSecOps way. And I, you know, started working on this space, I would say for the last uh, next six, seven years. And, you know, the DevSecOps has been uh, the blood of everything that we do. Uh, well, there was not enough automation and, you know, uh, tooling place. Now with the mm-hmm. uh, tools that is out there, like chat GPTs and the infrastructure as a code, uh, we, most things that we've imagined before us are now currently, you know, available to us. And um, you have a very, uh, you have a lot of experience on uh, this field, and I'm I'm interested to learn from your experience, right? Before we start, uh, I generally ask this question to all of our guests, uh, and I get different uh, like answers, uh, unique answers as well. So, I'm curious, what does a day in your life look like today? So it's a very, I'm in a unique and different position than most other people in. Uh, I work for a company in Europe, uh, and I'm in East Coast, uh, in New York area. 
And my day starts very, very early than most other folks are. And I have a lot of meetings with the European teams and also the West Coast team. So my day is very, very, uh, uh, you know, different than regular DevSecOps pe uh, uh, people's uh, uh, way of doing things. Uh, we do, uh, we are in the process of like, building a world-class team for the, this large organization. Uh, ultimately, you know, uh, we are mentoring, coaching a lot of product teams within the organization to show them the, you know, best or better way of doing stuff. So uh, providing governance, guidance, coaching, mentoring is, I guess, that's one thing that every DevSecOps architect has to do. And my day, you know, evolves around that 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 thing primarily. Okay. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for today's episode, we'll talk about a few topics, uh, but let's start with DevSecOps. So as you have been in the industry for some time, you have seen many trends, right? Earlier, we did not even have DevOps. Now, then we uh, had, then we got into DevOps uh, patterns and then security was never part of that. So then which led to the DevSecOps uh, move and the concept uh, behind it is all about like finding and addressing security issues as soon as possible in the development cycle. With that being said, what's your take on the transition? Like, how is the transition going on right now? I guess you mentioned one important thing, the detection, uh, detecting the issues as early as possible. I mean, you know, as you know, the shift left is almost like a synonymous with the, the DevSecOps. When you see DevSecOps blogs, they always mention shift left. And that always, almost always means that, you know, you have to do early detection. Uh, but, you know, what we are seeing, the evolution is continuing, you know, with everything else, um, that the, the expanding detection capabilities was uh, get, getting us into the next phase of doing stuff, meaning prevention and remediation. So I'm seeing huge step, you know, step towards the uh, auto-remediation capabilities, a huge step towards like prevention capabilities that wasn't part of the DevSecOps circles. And as a security practitioner who has been in this space for 15 years, you know, we keep constantly firefighting, meaning detecting things, not able to prevent them, not able to remediate those. Say, take the Log4j as an example. I have the sticker on my, you know, uh, desk that I've been showing to a lot of people in my calls because that's the, the unique case that everyone knows about. Um, Guess what? You know that you have like 10,000 instances of Log4j all around in your infrastructure. What's what's going to happen? How are you going to you know remediate those issues? Is it manual? Is it automated? You know how can you be smart about the, the, those type of incidents that happens? I guess mm -hmm. the evolution towards auto remediation and what we call them is prevention technologies or uh, preventative uh, controls in the compliance space are gaining more and more importance. Um, you know, DevSecOps was evolved from the Dev. Ops, but it was coining two terms, DevOps plus SecOps. They were like two separate disciplines or two separate approaches. Now we are seeing with the prevention things, DevSecOps really becoming real DevSecOps, fusing the Dev to Sec to Ops, Ops to Dev with all this complete loop. Um, I guess that's that's very exciting times, you know, for any professional security profession to be in you know, involved with any DevSecOps initiative. Makes sense. So uh, now the follow-up question to that is, uh, when, let's say, an organization did not have DevSecOps practices in place, they want to uh, get into DevSecOps, what kind of challenges they might face and how, how can they address them? All right, so there are two approaches that typically uh, we see in the in the industry. You know? And also, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. If you're a small organization, you try to upskill your dev 
people, mm -hmm. which I mean, if you think about a pyramid, you have like 10 developers. For 10 developers, you have like you know, five ops members. And for five ops members, you have one security personnel. So it only makes sense to upskill the dev to do more security, mm -hmm. to get them more involved with in implementing security or codifying security into their uh, infrastructure or in the, into their de uh, way of things, doing, doing mm -hmm. things. So uh, it is essentially what we call security escort. But this is an approach that is very common. And I call this an anti-paradigm because it, it results in uh, a, a hybrid situation that you are not neither DevOps or DevSecOps. What I'm trying to do in large organization, which is much more you know easier to implement if you have a lot more resources than, than small startups has, uh, we do upskill security people to do more development, meaning asking security practitioners, which is top of the pyramid in terms of the number of individuals that you have in your team to get involved with more automation of things in the dev side, meaning getting pre-commit hooks, pre-push hooks implemented, getting security scanning implemented on behalf of uh, the, the dev teams and not ask them to integrate those security checks into CICD, but have a dedicated team to operate the security checks on a separate pipeline, which is the, the, was the title of my talk that I present in RSA conference like six months ago in April 2023, implementing zero trust pipeline, zero trust DevSecOps pipeline for the large organizations. So these two approaches are valid depending on the size of organization, especially after seeing in you know, big organizations like the ones that, I, that was mentioned, uh, it is uh, the, the small startup approach really works for large organizations. I can easily say that. Yeah, and that that makes sense. And uh, one of the things that you highlighted was like pre-commit hooks or having a separate pipeline for your security uh, findings, right? That that matches with like something we heard from Matt, who was in our earlier episode. He was also talking about that you should not just block the rollout of a critical feature just because there is a security issue, but maybe work with the team so that you can do a fast follow up and get those resolved sooner than getting like sitting the the item sitting in the backlog for longer duration. Uh, another thing that I liked about is you mentioned about shift left, uh, shift left, right? And a lot of organizations are facing challenges on that front because you have to incorporate security at the earlier stages. So how can organizations find that balance that they shift left, incorporate security earlier, but at the same time doesn't affect the speed of the deliverables. All right, so a very good question. I mean, it's very common that when we say, when we talk about security, uh, that 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 Im immediately in people's minds becomes a, a as a thing that is going to slow them down, right? It is yeah. always a speed bump. It's always like a you know mm -hmm. speed limit that you can't go faster than this. And the reason for that is, um, you know, the security people are conscious of all the risks that is out there, and we we can't see the first hand all the risks that are being executed by the attackers or adversaries, you know, against the infrastructures that we are trying to defend or protect. Uh, developers are not on their side. They can't see the, the first time, you know, they can't witness that effect first, uh, first time. So uh, the breaking builds uh, with CICD pipelines or toll gating is a very common thing that kind of, you know, slows down the adoption of DevSecOps because you are practically asking developers to own uh, something that is going to slow them down. Or prevent them from moving faster. Hence, the shift left mm -hmm. in large organizations that you want to have a dedicated team that, that does it for them without asking them to own that piece. And also, what we see, what we try to say is we don't want the security people, especially the DevSecOps people, to be the, not 
be called team of no. We want them to be called team of how. We want to show how easy it is to implement this and also supplement their decisions before they, they get stuff deployed to production, but not block them. And it, it sounds easier uh, to do this without toll gating, but there are, there are bunkers that we typically decide, uh, design. There are tier one, tier two, tier three applications or product teams. For tier one teams, mm-hmm. we want to do toll, toll gating because they are in already in good shape because of the trade modeling that we have done, because of so many other things that they've demonstrated to us. We don't want to toll gate them. We want to give them the rating between one and 10. Oh, you guys, your build that you just finished building, CI, part of your CI, looks seven out of 10. So we don't want to do anything. There are teams that are high risk because of the business criticality, because of the sensitive that they're, that they're, that they're handling, because of the monetary volume that they are managing. They want, we want them to be tolerated or prevent, you know, have all the eyes on them, having four eyes on everything that they have. That, that has to be targeted. So it's not a blank thing that executes that case applied across all, all space. And also there is this third, third bucket, which is very common. So once you have like a, a somewhat meaningful metrics defined in your organization to measure um, the quality of the coding uh, or application development, anyone below the average should be automatically targeted. Anyone below the median should be automatically targeted. Not, it's not a blank statement. So that can, you know, it can be implemented in varying de- degrees or different uh, 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 ways. But the maturity mm-hmm. of the or security maturity of the team plays a critical role. And there are a lot of good ways to measure that. Like how many developers you have, how many vulnerabilities you have, what is your vulnerability per developer ratio? Are you beyond the average accepted thing for the organization or mm-hmm. below that average? So the targeting, if it's a blank thing, you are going to end up having a lot of headwind and friction, which is not something that no yeah. one likes. On this side, we don't like the other side. The developers typically, they don't like it neither. But coming coming up with common sense, implementing common sense security policies that are aware of the risks is the, the way to go. Yeah, I, I loved how you started, right? Like generally security teams are seen as roadblocks, right? It's like the way you highlighted that security teams should not be looked at as a team of no, but rather teams of how, like how can they enable you to become more secure? So that that sort of takes the conversation towards like culture, right? Because most of the organizations have some sort of culture. And if you are, have Dev, DevSecOps mindset, then you know that, yeah, security is important. You will start doing it from earlier in the uh, pipeline rather than later uh, as part of the STLC process. So. Any, any tips that you have for organizations to ensure that they have the culture, right culture in place? Um, you know what? This can turn into a very, very open and frank and sincere group therapy session very easily because that's our stress point. <laughs> there is a saying, I remember hearing this a while ago and I heard it like a couple of months ago again. Culture is strategy and transformation for lunch or for breakfast. So if you're in a culture, that is already well established in this organization, small or large organization, an old or old new one, the culture is going to eat all the strategy, all the best practices that you bring from all other places, all the high level influencer influence that you might try to bring into your organization, that's gonna be erased as a breakfast or lunch. So the culture mm-hmm. is very important. And it, it is unfortunately, you know, it takes a while. I mean, uh, in cultural transformation or any DevSecOps adoption for small or large organization, you know, going smooth, slow is smooth. Mm-hmm. When you go smooth, smooth is fast. So it's contradictory. You want to go slow 
you want to start having a lot of open frank sincere transparent organization you know uh, events within the organization and start having some sort of influence sphere created around your the things that you can control that expand your influence sphere towards the areas that you can't typically enforce any anything so that's a, mm -hmm. that's a slow process it's a human psyche human nature that we kind of reject the things that are new right in, in human mm -hmm. life numerous examples uh, security is the one that is easier to reject because it's always going to slow you down strictly speaking mm -hmm. but explaining the risks making sure everyone is part of uh part of the same team you know the same ship and also explaining that you know um if you don't do this we will fall behind on our bonuses we will fall behind on our uh kpis that is going to affect global everything and also seeing a lot of bad news that's that's I don't want to give any specific examples, but there are like every day, even yesterday was a big bad news on, on you know, how uh, uh, companies lost their MFA tokens and whatnot through the get leak, uh, leak credentials. There's, it's always happening. Very mm -hmm. easy, low-hanging fruit type of stuff are killing us. It is very easy. Right. You, know, you just have to be conscious about the things that is controllable very easily. It's like, you know, drive, learning how to drive. You have to learn while your parents are sitting right next to you when you're 16 and 18, you have to be driving with them for a while and then gradually become a driver license, I get the driver license. So that's the intention, you, you move slow and repetition is the mm -hmm. key. Uh, makes sense. So there are two aspects, right, uh, on the culture um, there, as you highlighted. One is, let's say, as an organization, you have a culture, you're following it. How can security teams work more closely with their DevOps team, a dev team or operations team. So whether it's like having a security champion or whether having brown bag lunches, what have you seen that has worked to build relationship between security and let's say product or engineering side? I mean, it, it is one part, one team uh, approach. It's a, it's mm -hmm. not multiple teams. You know, there might be some organizational boundaries. There might be some organization boundaries that involves the uh, HR hierarchy, like you report to X, the other team reports to Y, you know, the CISO and CTO, all whole organization structure. But if you essentially, you know, focus on you becoming the part of the same team or acting as if you're in the same team, that makes things easier. That that starts with having daily meetings or weekly meetings or on a regular cadence meetings in any, in any cadence is very critical. And also having very open uh, show and tells, Brownback sessions, lightning talks, uh, sometimes like you know, quarterly or monthly is 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 very very effective that we have seen. Uh, the transformation and showing things to be done, uh, we call them the, the you know dojos, you know the, you know doing show and tells in the way that you execute those steps and showing that oh it's very mm -hmm. easy to do, because I never know learned that it's that easy. Showing them is easy as easy as like you know some copying pasting some snippets and you're putting them into pipelines or some other places is going to make the transformation a lot easier and smoother. So it's not you're always sending them an email like you know saying that this has to be done or can you do this when you let me know. This is not going to work in corporate uh, America, especially in startups. It's not going to work because people have a lot of reasons to have busy get busy with some other stuff that is not security related. Makes sense. I love the idea of like lightning talks and the dojos, right? Like uh, doing it together uh, versus just training and uh, and just training uh, your team rather like doing like uh, hands-on workshops where you can show that how easily they can uh, make improvements and I mean, then incorporate those. Nothing is rocket science anymore. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> underestimate the importance of the things that we do, but you know, once you start working on this stuff, it's not that complicated. And 
I just want to reference back to the thing that I said. We don't want to be the team of no. We want to be the team of how. How do you demonstrate that you have the know-how, you have the hub skills? That's why you have to organize these dojo-type events that are periodical and recurring and a cadence that everyone knows that you have a nice, cool thing to show that is going to make everyone, this one team, uh, you know, benefit from. So, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. once they realize that it's, it's, uh, it's not conflicting, we are building a collaboration and we are consolidating all, all, a lot of efforts together. Building coalitions mm-hmm. is what we call, is very, very important. You know, the, the, the most easy way of doing things is, is having brown sessions. Yeah, uh, makes sense. So I want to uh, talk slightly about cloud now. Uh, I'm pretty sure you, uh, like at Roche, must be working with uh, major cloud providers. And when it comes to cloud, there is a shared responsibility model, right? Sometimes we assume that cloud providers take care of security for things which ideally we should also take care of. We should take care of it. So how do you see organizations who have recently moved or are moving to cloud think about security in a cloud native environment? In general, I'm not talking about anything specific to the employees that I'm currently associated with. In general, you know, shift, uh, shift, uh, lift and shift approach is what we def- define the, the migration towards the cloud infrastructures, right? That really works. And here is why. Mm-hmm. The benefit of having stuff running in the cloud is not just copying, pasting stuff in the way that it's executed. You want to benef- get the benefit from the proper compartmentalization of things, proper containment of things. That's Really, you know, the possible, the, the only meaningful way of doing, putting stuff into cloud is to get benefit from the containers and the consolidation things that the infrastructure that they're providing. So, and you might be, you might be aware of this. Most audience, you know, most uh, viewers of this podcast are going to also be aware of it. There is four C's of co- uh, cloud native security. You want to follow that four C. There are four layers in cl- uh, cont- uh, cloud security journey, cloud native security journey that has to be protected individually. That is cloud infrastructure cluster infrastructure, container itself, and the code. So if you pivot that, you know, four-level thing towards the left, you're just going to see stuff from left. The code is on the left, container is right up after the code code infrastructure, cluster, all the IMs and RBACs, etc. They all have to be carefully designed because so many of those mechanics that are in that uh, cloud-native infrastructure cannot be mapped to the old pet VM world of doing stuff that you you might be using virtualized infrastructure or like on-prem infrastructure with so many things that are deeply buried under your OS level that has to be decoupled completely from it and then uh, uh, you know uh, let the, let them manage by the control plane or CRDs inside the clearance cluster. So it's a whole new journey and I see that you know shift and lift type of operations are typically opening up Pandora's box because the vulnerabilities that you might have on your pet ecosystem or on-prem ecosystem now is on cloud visible and um not unmanageable very quickly in the cloud infrastructure yeah yeah uh makes a lot of sense so a follow-up question to that is and you touched upon this earlier as well around automation especially when uh, there is a uh, digital transformation happening an organization is moving to cloud they uh either do not spend a lot of time setting up the automation. Uh, And again, not just for deploying the workloads, but also from a security perspective. 
what like according to you what role does automation play when it comes to security in cloud native environment like does devsecops work yes i yes. presented a couple of days ago in an in a in an internal event and i called this devsecops is codifying security you know if you look at from very high level devops is codifying your infrastructure right all the ansible's puppets telephones yaml files or even Jenkins pipelines is codifying one way or another your infrastructure. If you are not codifying your security tooling into your infrastructure, that's not DevSecOps, right? So codifying infrastructure and codifying, codifying ops infrastructure and codifying security has to go hand in hand in order to have full-blown DevSecOps, you know, infinity tool. So mm-hmm. all, the, all the autom- you know, automation is key and automation is was not possible uh, to certain degree uh, till like five years ago. I mean, now we can talk about policies written in policy as a code languages like Rigo or uh, Chekhov or some other languages. All that like mm-hmm. right now, you know, features built into into the Kubernetes control plane. So all these things that wasn't possible before. But the, the biggest problem that I'm seeing that's happening right now is we are asking developers to write the policy as code or security as code for their own stuff. There's a maker-shaker problem. You can't ask people to check if they are complying with the policy. That policy as code and security as code to a certain degree has to be written by another entity with different organization boundaries applied to them because of the human nature, the maker-shaker problem. So when we try to develop DevSecOps in a small-scale startup environment, we ask a lot of that stuff, policy as code, rego, hey, you own it, you build it, you integrate with CICD. That's not how it works, unfortunately. Security has to be part of everyday, day-to-day activities, mm-hmm. but the ownership and execution of those has to be different. That's segregation of duties, we call that that in SACS compliance, or make a checker problem in, in, in you know in every everyday life. So so that automation has to be owned by dedicated security folks. We call them DevSecOps mm-hmm. in large organizations, has to be able to write the code and automation for security as code implementation and policy as code implementation uh, to the level that it's checking the code that is living in synergy and harmony with the CI/CD operation that is already owned and executed by the dev slash DevOps teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes sense. Uh, I, I want to follow up with uh, one of the things that you highlighted earlier, right? Like when it comes to cloud, you have to look at the four C's, code, container, cluster, cloud. And as part of the shift left, a lot of focus is being paid to container, uh, sorry, to the code world. Yes. And uh, when it comes to code, nowadays there is a, like a lot of adoption of open source software. Uh, I think there was a um, there was a study, recent study, which showed that about eighty two percent of the code written by enterprises uh, is like sorry. Code written by enterprises out of that 82% of the code is open source, like using some external library. And that sort of makes you vulnerable to like supply chain security, uh, like the attacks that happen to let's say SolarWinds or Twilio or PyPy. So from a security perspective, how do you look at this? Like code being one of the key uh, aspects, using open source software, making you vulnerable to let's say supply chain security how do how do you look at it so 
So when you look at the raw number of CVs, raw number of issues and their CVSS attached uh, scoring, you, it's very mm -hmm. easy to get very depressed very quickly, right? The number of CVs on average in 2023 is around 77. There are 77 CVs disclosed every, every freaking day, right? So ultimately what happens is it's not sustainable, it's not manageable. So we cannot fight against that volume of, of velocity of CVs coming towards us. And it, with every automation that you might put in place, it's not easy. And the reason why it's not easy is that, you know, we assume that every CV is exploitable. Every CV is exploitable under special circumstances. So the rating of those CVS, CVEs is being shifted towards what we call EPSS, Exploitability Prediction Scoring System Driven Data, that is machine learning driven using the CAV, which is CISA's, you know, non exploitable vulnerability list that just passed 1,000 uh, NLCVs uh, yesterday or two days ago, uh, or last week actually. Uh, so these data, once it comes together, it kind of gives us proper tooling to do the prioritization, right? So the CV fighting or vulnerability fighting becomes much more meaningful and, you know, executable. So the automation that we are putting in place is focusing on that. Um, Priority, properly prioritize CVEs to make the you know development uh, uh, dev, DevSecOps scalable. Without without the proper prioritizations in place, software supply chain issues with the open whether it's open source or proprietary coming from big OS vendors like Microsoft, Red Hat, or other ones, you know it is not mm -hmm. manageable. You have to take into the uh, uh, EPSS like actionable data into consideration. Otherwise, software supply chain, especially the ones that are out there, that has been out there for like long period of time, is not easy. And also, one thing that I should mention, you know, I kind of briefly touched on that uh, a couple of minutes ago. The reason why we are moving to cloud is not, I should say, we, we, the, we, the reason why we are moving to cloud native security is to get benefit from the containerization. So, if you have properly contained applications, that is ephemeral and immutable, the containers, mm -hmm. why is not like that? Then you minimize the risk. The risk is still there, but you minimize, you minimize the risk with common sense policies. The biggest gain that I see in that 4C is the containerization space. Having the containers properly hardened, we use mm -hmm. cloud build packs, we, have, we use chain um, uh, distroless images or very, hard, very uh, properly hardened images. That is minimizing the risk that we ultimately have to inherit from the open source community. Because we cannot go back and fix log4j uh, mm -hmm. on December 4th, that was the day this, that was disclosed, that the you know, patch was available, but there was multiple attempts you know, to fix it really. So you cannot really, really rely on that. If you have a properly containerized environment, properly hardened, foreseed uh, cloud native operation, the open source uh, software supply chain issues uh, are losing its emphasis uh, or importance because in terms of the risk or governance and risk and compliance perspective. Uh, I, I I feel that we should have a separate episode altogether on the four C's of cloud and yeah. how you can secure the, those areas. Uh, but I'm I'm loving it, uh, like especially when you highlighted about like uh, the distroless hardened images using those for your containers, yeah. or uh, like doing uh, instead of using CVSS score, maybe focus on EPSS because that shows whether those are exploitable or not. If it is not exploitable, even though it is critical, it's it should not be the highest priority, right? Because developers cannot work on uh, 100 critical and high in a sprint. They have to focus on few because they also have to deliver some business requirements. Um, yeah. So that that brings me to the next question, which is around 
the landscape right how has this landscape changed so you have been in the industry for a while you have seen the devops uh, practices devsecops now now cloud native security using devsecops in cloud native security how has the landscape changed i mean assume that hypothetically speaking you are in an environment that you manage to detect all the issues all mm-hmm. the issues that is deeply buried in your products infrastructure whole nine yards so what's next instead of assuming that you had thousand vulnerabilities or thousand issues that you need to fix now you realize the complete picture as 10,000 weaknesses and vulnerabilities. What's next? What are you going to do? That's the landscape is, that's the landscape, you know, the direction that I see that a lot of uh, vendors are moving towards. That is, uh, detection is already kind of, you know, 90% reliably executable with the right tool, right mindset, right approach. The auto remediation Mm -hmm. is the space that is everything is going to get bigger. Right now, roughly speaking, roughly less than 10% of the things can be auto remediated. I'm going to give you a couple of vendor names. Um, the, you know, there's Open Rewrite Initiative. Moderna is one vendor that I know that's very doing good, good stuff on their front. There are a couple other vendors that are doing uh, recipes to uh, answer to those couple common issues that is widely you, you know, seen in either Java language or like Python or some other lang- uh, languages or frameworks. So the auto-remediation is going to be from less than 5% today, going to like, you know, 20, 30%, hopefully within three years, because the more detection we have, the more auto-remediation needs we are going to end up having. And then what's next? Mm-hmm. We have auto-remediation and whatnot. What's next after auto-remediation? Five years from now, we are going to start talking about prevention, because we are going to detect very quickly and pre- you know, auto-remediate quickly, but that's not proper way of doing things. You know, the human... Humans are, you know, doing things better and better. So we're going to start focusing on proactively focusing on prevention. That's when the cloud native build packs and proper containerization and some other stuff comes in place. So I recommend that any DevSecOps practitioner, that's what I do, right, for all these global organizations. Three tracks, major three tracks. Expand your detection capabilities fully, you know, to the fully. That's not easy to get to 100%, but you can get to 97%. Start auto-remediation programs that is starting at very minimum, like three to five percent of things that can be automated, but it's going to slowly go up and start your third track, which is tr- prevention. Without these three pillars, DevSecOps is not DevSecOps. It's just a name. It's a nice coin term that makes, that gives a lot of you know, uh, good emotions, a lot of good you know, feelings to a lot of good people, but it's not applicable. So you have to have those three pillars almost simultaneously executed. So you lift the scale of your organization, you lift the security measures of your infrastructure or your organization to the better places. Uh, I I totally agree on uh, like every uh, at every time there is a, a marketing hyped word, right? Uh, like today it's Gen AI. Earlier it was blockchain. So similarly, even in security, uh, at one point we were talking about uh, detection, like show me what vulnerabilities are there. Now we have slowly moved to remediation. So I love how you mapped it to a landscape, right? Like how the security landscape is uh, evolving. Any emerging trends or technologies that you are noticing, which uh, uh, folks, uh, our listeners or our audience should be careful about or should be interested to learn about? I mean, I mean you know, chat GPT or GPTs in general, GPT-3. I've been following GPT-3, uh, GPT space for since GPT-3.0, which was three, four years ago. Uh, 3.5, 4.0, all these things are getting things done very easily. 
And this plays, you know, GPT technology or AI plays into the auto-remediation space, but not typically in the prevention space. The, the auto-remediation and detection can be can benefit from all this stuff. The remediation, uh, I'm sorry, uh, prevention is always strategical thinking and knowing what's going to come next. So um, I recommend, you know, experimenting with all the, the nice tools out there, but not rely on them 100%, but 80% of the time they are reliable. Um, you know, and start implementing them as, a, as early as possible. As a matter of fact, a lot of large organizations are, you know, doing pilots with Copilot and Copilot X or some other tools out there. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and you're spot on on the, like using LLMs and all of that to enable your uh, engineering or dev teams to remediate uh, issues that uh, increases their productivity overall as well, right? So uh, makes a lot of sense. And that's a great way to end the security questions uh, for this episode. Thank you so much, Kera, for the insightful uh, conversation. Here are a few important points which stood out for me. The first one is organizational alignment is the most important factor for security roadmap. Uh, pro tip, when speaking with business, security teams should use business language rather than technical language. The second part is uh, build a one team culture like brown bags, lightning talks, dojos, etc. are great ways to collaborate with business or engineering or product teams to build the relationship, show the value and the impact of security function to other parts of the organization. The third one is when it comes to cloud migration, lift and ship doesn't work. Follow cloud best practices from a packaging and containerization perspective and focus on the four C's like code, container, cluster and cloud from a security perspective. Thank you. Uh, we also have a section which highlights uh, on rating security practices. The way it works is I'll I'll share a practice and uh, you need to rate from one to five, one being the worst, five being the best. And you can add context also why you rated it as one or two or three or five or something like that. Cool. Uh, so let me start with the first one. DevOps practices are needed to move fast and to deploy code to production. Security is not my most uh, like highest priority uh, right now. So I'll do it in the next sprint. Uh, you want me to break this rate, you know, statements? It's not less, it's not more than two. And there might be some reasons, you know, why this statement might be valid, but, you know, DevSecOps, the way that we define the software, safer, sooner. So DevOps is software sooner. DevSecOps is software safer, sooner, quicker and safer approach. So this statement can, can should only get like between one and five, two, uh, very close to being worse. Okay. I agree. All right. <laughs> uh, so... Next practice that I want to talk about is uh, continuous in integration is a must for uh, DevSecOps practices. Security architecture review uh, is performed on a regular basis. I mean, continuous integration is not a security practitioner by design. It's a DevOps practitioner. Continuous integration should not include security. Uh, in a large organization, in a properly, it should be part of another pipeline. That's the the way to go in zero trust message model in advanced level implementation. Um, uh, 
you know, ultimately, you know, you want the people uh, to um, focus on things, you know, on 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 the uh, on on their depending on their unique needs. So a small organization might implement that in the same CI phase, mm-hmm. but also the Nirvana point should be always like having that decoupled, and people should be aware of that. And I say that statement, you know, having the security in CI is like three between one and five, uh, not mm-hmm. more than. I'm very conservative. <laughs> okay, uh, that's fair. Uh, the last one that I want to uh, talk about is uh, use of strong passwords that contain mix of uppercase, lowercase letters, numbers, symbols, and changing them frequently uh, to avoid reuse of uh, same passwords. I mean, the, the, the way that we design passwords are for humans. Uh, um, Secrets are for machines or services, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are talking about passwords for humans, it should always be accompanied by MFA and even like some other advanced uh, passwordless approaches, right? MFA is a must-have, and I'm, most people like me, I have been in this space, you know, for like twenty years that I had to manage various passwords for various things. I use password managers. I use password managers that generates like 40 character long, uppercase, lowercase, digits, symbols, etc. That's not easy to guess. It's not easy to brute force. But ultimately, my password manager is protected by a lot of things, including MFA. So the importance of having long passwords uh, from the security the developer perspective, yes, we should anticipate and enforce, I would say, minimum 16 digit, 16 character long, alphanumeric uh, passwords so that you we ask people to use password managers with MFA. Without MFA, password managers is not a good idea. Makes sense because you have one sort of like database which is not secure, right? You just have a password to access your database. Then once you have access to the database, then you can go to any service and you have access to the I have a user in database. Assume that I'm a developer, that I have a user, then I have a password for that database. And my password is kept in my um, uh, password manager somewhere that I have to go to mm-hmm. MFA authentication. So I kind of add additional layer to that on top if I fully properly right. implement, implement it. Right, right. May, makes a lot of sense. And uh, and that's a that's a great way to end the episode uh, as well. Uh, thank you so much, Kara, for joining. Uh, it was thank lovely you. to speak with thank you on multiple nice topics. Yeah. Nice, to, nice to be here. Thank uh, you. Thank you. And to our uh, audience, thank you so much for watching. Hope you have learned something new. If you have any questions around security, share those at scale20.com and we'll get those answered by an expert in the security space. See you in the next episode. Thank you.